We're going to continue our look at the uh, book of Samuel this morning. Um, you know, we, we've told you all that we're collaborating with New City Fellowship and also in our Spanish service. We're all covering the same material. And uh, so we're getting together about once a week one, or every other week, Dawson and Marcos, myself, uh, Jeff White, our two RUF guys. And uh, so we get together for about an an hour, two hours, and collaborate on the uh, scriptures to decide how and what we're going to present and what it's going to cover and that kind of thing. And uh, so as we choose these various texts, uh, I have noticed that the younger guys are not being very fair to me. So I just want you to know that they're taking advantage of the older pastor because they gave me, believe this, two whole chapters. I have to do all of 9 and 10. All Dawson had to do last week was 8, 1 through 22. I mean, it's easy. It's a breeze. And I have to do 47, 57 verses. Is that right? 57? Yeah, 57 verses. So I told our uh, Sunday school class that you all better have brought some snacks because I don't know what's going to happen here. So... Um, Let's take a look at the scriptures. I'm not going to do all these verses, but I, am go I have given you a really convenient outline. We're going to just read certain portions, and I'll summarize the rest. So now here, uh, there's an outline there, four points you'll see, and, and uh, we'll, it won't, four won't be too much. You'll see. Uh, so now let's read God's word, starting with these first four verses in chapter 9. There was a wealthy in influential man. The Hebrew says a man of valor or a warrior. So this man, Kish, was from a warrior clan, a man of valor. Um, these guys were not bakers, okay? Uh, nothing against bakers, but they were, they were, um, they were warriors. There was a wealthy, influential, influential man named Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Berakaf, son of Aphia, of the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. One day, Kish's donkeys strayed away, and he told Saul, take a servant with you and go look for the donkeys. So Saul took one of the servants and traveled through the hill country of Ephraim, the land of Shalishah and Shalaim, and the entire land of Benjamin. But they couldn't find the donkeys anywhere. Now down to verse 14, just for a reference. Saul said, let's go home. But the servant said, I've heard about a seer or a prophet. They entered the town as Samuel was coming out. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we're looking at this uh, book of Samuel. It's an amazing narrative by any account, even if you're not a believer. If you go and read what some of the secular authors have said about it, Almost everyone agrees that Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles are truly an amazing group of narratives. And Samuel, the first and second book, which was all one volume originally, um, 
stands out. It just in, in the way it presents this amazing story. Remember, it is not history. It is historical. But he's not telling an account of every single thing that happened in the life of Saul or everything that happens in the life of David or everything that happens to the nation of Israel. These authors were very selective in what they said. I mean, this, we're looking at history that's hundreds of years long when you start to look at Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Hundreds of years. And yet they're very brief. So they're telling us a story. But it's a story with a purpose. And at this point in the story, it's a kingdom. And God is looking for a king. It's not that he doesn't know or anything like that, but he's wanting those of us who are reading to understand that there was a world that his people were living in. We live in this world. And God is ruling and reigning over this world all the time. He has from the very beginning, and He is now. There's absolutely no time when God is not in absolute and complete control. Right? He's in control. And yet, we see these forces at one another's throats from Genesis chapter 3. The serpent and his seed, and the seed of Eve, the mother of all living, these two seeds, if you will, are going to be in conflict. There's going to be war. And you see that theme running throughout the Scripture. And as you do, you see part of the reason why at this point in their history, they were asking for a king. They were surrounded, much like the modern nation of Israel today, surrounded by enemies. And they're there, and all of those nations have armies and kings and warriors, but Israel was primarily an agrarian culture, and so up to this time, they just had judges that ruled over, and you know, they'd have a, a problem, they'd go to the judge. But now... They're needing a king because they've got forces present. So the kingdom is in need of a king. And this narrative shows us how God is going about this process and why. So we're going to look at these four things. God in the ordinary and mundane. That's one through four. God's invisible hand. This is really running throughout the rest of the narrative, but I'm just going to cover it in 15 through 20, uh, 21. Then this idea of, will you trust me? I say it every week here in church, but you know we often think that faith is a, a, a line in the sand. We have faith and then we step over that line and from then on it's just, you know, you've got to grit your teeth and make it. And I've tried to tell you, Dawson has as well and others that we've had here, faith is a choice that you're making every minute of every day. Are you going to trust him or not? Your choice. Don't say, well, some people have more faith than others. No, we all have, we can all have faith. You're just choosing what you're going to trust. Every time you take a dollar bill out of your pocket, uh, that's an exercise of faith. All right? Okay, so think about that. Will you trust me? Every narrative, the authors are saying to the audience, will you trust me? The audience may be Saul, may be David, may be the whole nation. I don't know. 
That's what the context is for. But he's asking us, all of us, that question, individually and corporately. Will we trust God in everything? Not just big things, but little things too. That's why we're going to look at the ordinary and the mundane. And then finally, the invisible hand, uh, will you trust me? And finally, the gospel according to Samuel. Believe it or not, Samuel preaches the gospel in one sentence. It's just stunning, absolutely stunning. So let's get going here. Dawson finished up last week, the end of eight. In the end of eight, the people had come to uh, Samuel and they said, we want a king. We want a king like all the nations. And, God, and Samuel goes back to God and tells, them, tells him what they said. And God says, do what they say. Give them a king. And Samuel agreed with God and he went and started the process. So what we're looking at is the stage in this narrative, the stage is set for a king to come forward. Now the, the audience didn't know all the stuff we know. They just are reading and they're saying, okay, a king's going to come. If it's the first time you're reading through the Bible, you're thinking, okay, a king's coming. We know it's David. We know that David is coming, but not everybody knew that. So the stage is set for choosing this king of Israel. And you might expect that God is going to give them what they wanted. A king like all the nations. A king that was going to be head and shoulders above everybody. Handsome, good looking, and tall. He means head and shoulders. He's a big man. He's a warrior come from a warrior clan whose father is like a... Uh, a general or something, and he, all his uncle, his uncle Abner, becomes the general of his army. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing, the story. And Saul, the son of Kish, is a mighty man. He's a big man, a strong man. Comes from a wealthy, influential family. And so when he steps onto the scene, everybody's going, yeah, he is just like the kings of the nations, and he's going to be able to destroy these bad guys, these Philistines and Ammonites and Amalekites and all the others. No problem. He's going to have a lot of might and a lot of power. And so for us, and we've already made the point, he's going to give them a king like all the other nations. But Trimper Longman, one of the wonderful Old Testament professors that I was privileged to study under, and he said, yeah, he's like the other nations, but he's also unlike, unlike. Listen to this, it's really something. The Israelites wanted a king like the nations, but the person of God's choosing, talking about Saul, was unlike any of the other kings. He was an exemplary human being. He was transformed in heart and supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God, at least for the time being. So we tend to look at Saul, and he is a tragic figure, folks. I, when I, the, uh, I don't know, in 2004, when I first came to Christ the King, I preached through Samuel. And I told the, the church then, and I'll tell you now, he's a tragic figure. But don't for one minute think that he's not a covenant man, that he's not a believer in Yahweh. Don't think that. He is as much a believer as you and I. And Saul struggles mightily with his faith. 
David does too, but in a different way. And we see a lot of good qualities in Saul. So we don't want to think, oh, God just chose him so that he could fail and teach them a lesson. That's a terrible way to look at this narrative. God chose Saul. And at the end of the day, he did not give them a king like all the nations. He did not choose Saul as punishment or in order to teach them a lesson. Saul could have succeeded like so many others. But instead, he tragically struggled to trust God, to walk in obedience, and to repent when necessary. He's more like us than David. We're more like him than we are with David, at least in this part of the narrative. So what about this God in the ordinary? You know, as I read through the narrative, and I see there's a lot of detail, you know because I skipped it. You know, they're out there looking for the donkeys, and they don't find the donkeys, and the, the, the uh, search seems aimless and just, you know, silly. I mean, gosh, there's, what's going on here? They're going from one place to another. Where's the donkeys? Can't find the donkeys. And then later, in the, more, uh, in the narrative, later in the narrative, there's more of this, seems like meaningless details, just a lot of, lot of narrative and you've got to ask yourself, what is going on? You know, scholars, not too many guys comment on this because nobody really knows. What do you do with all this stuff about Samuel and his servant going here or Saul and his servant going here and there and the money and we don't have a gift and we don't have anything to give? What is going on there? You would have expected, it seems to me, you would have expected God to work. He's going to choose his king. Big deal, right? Going to choose his king we should see something miraculous. We should see a blazing uh, announcement across the sky, some kind of a meme, a spiritual meme that everybody would see that has Saul in it. And instead, you don't see that. You see the most mundane, ordinary guys out looking for his donkeys. They're not finding the donkeys. They don't know what to do. Saul wants to give up. I got to get out of here. Let's go back home. The servant has got to tell him, no, we need to keep looking. And I know about a prophet that might be able to help us. You know, let's go. Now that we've failed, let's go ask God to help us. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Now that I can't do it, I'll ask God. How come they didn't go to the prophet first? They would have found those donkeys. No, this is the way we operate. This is the normal. This is mundane. This is everyday life. And the king of Israel, the future king that God is choosing, is that guy. We'll find later on, David is that guy too. He's just a shepherd boy who's out there, you know, he's the eighth son. He's the no good for nothing, the ruddy one, the one nobody cares about. Amazing. And God says... Saul says, let's go home. The servant says, no, 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 let's not give up. I've heard about a prophet. Saul tells him, Adam, we don't have any money. How are we going to go see the prophet? Because you know, you all know that if you want our best, you want the best from Dawson and me, you better come with some cash. <laughs> you come empty-handed and you're just going to get, you know, whatever. The coffee from McDonald's. If we like you, we're taking you to Starbucks, baby. <laughs> All right. 
very mundane. You would expect miracles, but you don't get miracles. And people think the Bible is full of miracles. There are very few miracles in the Bible. There's only five periods, and each one is very brief, of miracles in the Bible. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, the Elijah and Elisha cycle, that's two more. You have some miracles with Jesus, only a few years. And then the apostolic, and it's only at the beginning of the apostolic. That's it. You've got this big, thick Bible, and there's only a few places where you see miracles. God works in your life, in the life of His people, in everyday, ordinary things. Everything. The most ordinary, the most mundane things in your life, you need to know that God is there, working. That He's not asleep. You don't have to go into His presence like so many religions. They, they teach you to go into the temple and <laughs> clap your hands. You've got to wake Him up. That's why they do that in the shrines in the, in the East. Got to wake him up. He's sleeping. Let's get his attention. No, God is at work in the ordinary every day. And that should bring a certain amount of joy and contentment to you that you don't have to wring your hands and say, what special thing do I need from God? When he has told you, I am with you. I'm in everything. And I'm for you in these things. Why do we know this? Why do the people of God, these people in the old world and us in the new, but still people of God, why and how can we know that? Look at verse 15. The Lord had told, it's in your bulletin, the Lord had told Samuel Tomorrow I will send a man from Benjamin, anoint him to be the prince or the leader. Anoint is the word mashach, it's the, same, it's the verbal form of the noun mashiach or messiah. Anoint Saul to be my messiah, my chosen, my king, my son. And he will be the leader, the prince over my people. He will defend them. In the shorter catechism of our church, our denomination, uh, uh, question 11, what are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. In other words, we know we're not puppets. That's not puppet theology, folks. It is something way beyond that. That God is not a puppet master and that you're just a puppet on a string. No. He's saying that in this world, you can have the confidence that He's working in all things. Even the evil and the horrors that we see in this world, God is at work redeeming. Is He responsible for Gaza? And Israel? No, we are. Is he responsible for this mess on the border? No, we are. You say, well, I'm not responsible. Yes, you are. As human beings, we are responsible for the world that he gave us, which was good. And the only thing he said that was not good is that we as men would be alone, so he gave us wives. And that was the first mistake. 
you all know I'm kidding. Look, he gave us a good world. He said, you have everything you need. Now go and spread the garden out to the whole world. And what's the first thing we do? Turn our back on him. Because we don't believe. We don't believe his gospel. We don't believe his good words to us. And that's why we're here in this church. I mean, I'm not, we're not here so that, you know, I can get all puffed up at how smart I am. I already know that. You guys are slow on the uptake, some of these jokes, aren't you? How do we know? Because there's an invisible hand. How much of the invisible hand? 100%. How much you're choosing, your humanity, you're doing, how much? 100%. 100% you doing and choosing and making decisions, and it's 100% God behind the scenes working and doing His good pleasure. Yeah? you love that? That gives you the confidence and the poise to be able to move through life without constantly wringing your hands and saying, oh, I just need a miracle. I need a sign. I need something. If it comes, great. But if it doesn't, it's okay. Because He's with you in everything. Small choice. You know, we have kids come to us, Dawson too. We have kids come to us that are going to college. You know, I've gotten acceptance letters from three great colleges. Which one is God's will? Which one is God's will? And I always tell my students, so you students, here's the answer. You don't even have to bother me. You don't have to come see me. Here's my answer. Make a choice. Whichever one you choose is God's will. What? And then they lose their ever-loving minds because you parents have been teaching them all wrong about sovereignty and providence. Make a dang choice. Decide. And that choice, if it's made in faith, will be the right one. And when you get to that college and everything goes wrong, you won't be back over here going, oh, I made a mistake. I should have never listened to Chuck. I should have... No. You're supposed to say when everything goes wrong, I trusted you, Lord, to get here and I'm going to trust you now. Can you all please say amen to them? Because you can live that life. That life is livable. The other one is untenable because you're going to be in a pit all the time wanting a miracle to get you out of the pit instead of knowing that everything that happens to you is God's working behind the scenes. So all this detail comes in, and what happens next, interesting, Samuel says to Saul and his servant, I'm the seer. Go to the place of worship. We'll eat together. I'll tell you what you want to know. Send you on your way. There's all this detail. And you're going, what does this mean? What is it's just God is speaking through his prophet and telling him, go do all these mundane things. Don't worry about it. Just go. Trust me. And he even tells He even tells Saul this much. He says, you know, you and your family are going to be the focus of all Israel's hopes. He was not telling Saul this to deceive him so that Saul could be some kind of a lesson. Folks, if you look at your Christian life like you're in a classroom, what's God teaching you? Don't ever ask me that. and Don't ever ask Dawson, what's God teaching you through this disaster? That is rubbish. You're not in a classroom. You're in an embrace. All the difference in the world. Are you going to learn stuff? 
Say yes. I'm going to learn stuff. You better believe it. But if you just think you're out there like students and he's throwing his eraser at you, then what kind of a life is that? What kind of a relationship is that with God? It's awful. I'm not in a classroom. I've learned a lot in my 68 years and soon to be 69 years. I've learned a lot, a lot of it. I never would have learned if he hadn't thrown the eraser at me. But I always knew, and I've always known, that he's got me in an embrace. That I'm not his student. I'm his son. As unworthy and unlikely as that may seem, and undeserved, I stand because of his invisible hand and nothing else. Saul says, I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin. How how can you be saying these things? Right away, you see, this is a man of exemplary character. He's very humble. In fact, when they go to find him, you'll see in a a minute when we read this next day, he's hiding. He's not looking for fame. He's not looking for glory. He's not looking for the prize. He just wanted to find some donkeys. The dad said, go find. They're lost. What a great God you have. What a great Savior you have that is working in the ordinary and mundane things of your life and behind the scenes, extraordinary. Nothing can touch you. Does that mean you won't suffer? You're going to suffer. You'll have all kinds. And some of it is going to be mind-blowing, like Job, you know, uh, uh, Job, over and over. Why, why, why? What's going on? I don't understand. It's okay not to understand. Saul's humility is really hopeful. It, it should give you hope that you can also know that God is at work. He's at work in our nation. He's at work in our churches. He's at work among His people. He's at work even in the, the crazy governments of this world and the nutty decisions people make, even the nutty decisions that you make. He is at work. Will you trust Him? Look at this next section. It's amazing. We live by faith and God takes His choice of king and He puts Him excruciating detail, folks. It's, it, you wonder why is all this detail here? It's here because look at these verses. Samuel placed Saul. He took him in. Samuel took him to a dinner. Okay? And he places him at the head of the table. The verses are there in your, in your bullet, bulletin. He placed Samuel, uh, Saul at the head of the table and honored him among all the special guests. So he did one of the first things they would do in the ancient Near East is they gathered some of the prominent folks and they had a, a meal. Much like Jesus, he went and had these meals at the Pharisee's house or whatever. And, you know, they would invite all these special guests because that's how you introduce somebody that is now going to be stepping up in the public. He's going to, uh, he's going to start trending. Did I use that right? The young guy? He's going to start trending. So this is the first thing he does. He brings him to a dinner party and he honors him. He asks him to stay. So Samuel is giving, and all the details are there, Samuel is giving a a public, to a small group, validation and honor to to Saul. For Saul's own sake and for other people's sake. Okay, look at the next bit. The next day, he took a flask of oil. They go off in private. He sends the servant away. 
and he takes the flask of oil, and just him and, and Saul, he breaks the oil, pours it on his head. This, everybody would have understood, that means you're the king. Nobody's around. Nobody can see this. So implicitly, Samuel is telling Saul, will you trust the gods, the spirit of God who this oil represents pouring out on your head and flowing down your, covering you, um, will you trust him? So it's God's private, God is saying privately, validating, honoring, confirming in detail to Saul. You're my choice. And then finally, look at this last part. The Spirit of God comes on and he, he comes on him and he goes out and he starts prophesying with all the prophets. And you go, what is going on with that? This is public national confirmation by the Holy Spirit. They even came up with a saying for it. Is Saul also among the prophets? See, this word got out among the whole population that God's invisible hand was working in the man of God's choosing, Saul. Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe, the least family of the Benjamites. And yet, here he is. He's coming, he's, he's trending, he's moving into the forefront, and God is in all this detail. He's confirming, confirming, confirming. So Saul would have something to trust. God's word. I'm telling you all this. Every detail. But you know what happens, folks? It's easy for us uh, to forget the gospel. And I think that's, that's why we, I put in this last little section. I want to do this quickly. But listen carefully because it's so easy. And I think one of the things that you recognize the contrast between Saul and David, as you go through this narrative, is, is Saul is a foil for David. God is contrasting, not saying that Saul was not his choice, that David was his choice, although he is. What he's saying is that every day you're going to have to trust me. And will you do it? What is the gospel that... Saul repeatedly forgot that David never forgot. There's the difference. Saul is tragic. He forgot the gospel. He, he, right to the end of his life, he just would not remember. He had, he had a, a, a short circuit, like so many of us. Saul, Samuel, Saul, uh, David comes along and he makes a lot of mistakes, but David never forgets the gospel. Never. And that's the difference. Not that David didn't make mistakes, but that he never forgot the gospel. So what Samuel does here in these last verses, from 10.17, and we're covering a lot of ground, uh, to the end of chapter 10, is this explanation of the gospel. So, Look at verse uh, 17 and 19. Just those two verses. In those two verses, Samuel preaches the gospel. Here it is. Samuel says to the people who are gathered, they're going to make Saul king. Samuel says to them, God rescued you from misery and distress, but you rejected him. There is the bad news of the gospel. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, God gave you a garden and you rejected him. 
God gave you a world and you polluted it. So he floods the world and he cleans it all up and he gives it back to to Noah. And then they forget the gospel. They build the Tower of Babel. Do you see what's going on? Over and over again, we forget. And he preaches the gospel and you, God delivered you and you forgot, you rejected him. Then he gives them the good news. Thank God, verse 19, look at it, it's outstanding. Well, it's not in your bulletin, but I'll read it to you. Now, present yourselves before the Lord by tribes and clans. Now listen carefully, this is key. I will choose your king. See, they thought they were choosing, but who's really choosing? Who? God is really choosing. They think they're choosing their king, but he's really choosing because they do it by lot. That's what all this stuff about lot is. So God, the son of Kish, was chosen by lot. He was hiding. Then they go find him. He stood head and shoulders. Samuel turns to him in front of all the leaders of Israel, and he says, this is your king. There's no one in Israel like him. True. Big warrior, tall, strong, Powerful family, influential, all that good stuff going on. And the people respond, long live the king. And then Samuel explains the duties and all that. They write it down like a contract. Actually, it's a covenant. They wrote it down and they placed that before the Lord. Here's the duties and responsibilities of the king. God didn't choose him to fail. On the contrary, he equipped Saul with every advantage. But the thing that Saul didn't do, that we often don't do, is we forget the gospel. Why do we need a king anyway? Well, unless you haven't noticed, folks, you live in a world that is surrounded by the seed of the serpent, the old devil, the dragon. So, oh, no, Chuck's going to talk about that. Uh, not too much, because there's not a lot in the Bible about the serpent. Very little. People write big books about him. There's not that much in the Bible about him. But he is there, and he is present, and he is corrupting, and he is deceitful, and he had a certain amount of power. He was ruling the nations and bringing up these these different countries like Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire, the Chaldeans, uh, uh, the Greek Empire, Alexander, and uh, the Roman Empire, and so on and so forth. If you've read... Uh, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, you see these kingdoms growing and the beast is in charge of these kingdoms. But something happened. The nation needed a king. They needed a king. And our catechism teaches us that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our Enemies. You see, he doesn't just kind of give you some tools and then throw you out there and tell you, go, go and fight. Good luck. God bless you. Have a great day. No, we see something quite different than that. The kingdom is in search of a king because you better have somebody out there to defend you. Not to stay up on the back like all these movies. They're all, the kings are all back there on their horses in the back while all these guys are running out in the front. In the book of Exodus, 
The people are in the wilderness. I'm going to close with this. Listen carefully. The people of Exodus are in the wilderness and they want a God. They want more gods than Moses can provide for them. They want quail and they want manna and they want this and they want, they're constantly complaining and carping and, and all of that. And so God, to, to, to discipline them, he sends a bunch of fiery serpents, snakes, literal snakes, and they're biting the people and people are dying and they beg Moses and God, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. So listen to what the text says. This is fantastic. They're in the wilderness. They're messing up. The enemy is coming in and poisoning them because of their sin. As Moses, so they go to Moses, please help us. Moses made a serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, the person could come to that pole with the serpent coiled around it and look at it and he would live. Are you getting the picture? They're in the wilderness. They're being attacked by their enemies uh, for their own fault. But God is still protecting them. He takes a serpent, tells Moses, make a serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up for the people to see. And then... In chapter 11, listen, I, I just want to make sure, I don't know if you all have this in your notes or not, but in chapter 11, the kingdom in search of a king. Why do you need a king? Listen, in chapter 11, it starts with this. Nehesh, the king of the Ammonites, was grievously oppressing the people. Okay? Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, grievously oppressing the people. Now, just so you know, Dawson will be talking about it next week. Saul goes and, and he, he defeats Nahash. Nahash is Hebrew for serpent. Nahash is the word for serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Nahash is serpent every time you read it in the Old Testament. And the first thing, listen to this, folks, it's so cool. The first thing that God tells his king to do is go crush the head of the serpent. Nash. And everybody would have been thinking about that. You're supposed to think about it when you're listening to this narrative. And in the New Testament, you read this. Why do you need a king? You better have somebody that can go up against Nash because you can't. You don't have the power, you don't have the, the you don't have it. But he's here. The serpents are here. How are you going to manage Nehesh without a king? Well, Jesus told us. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who looks at him, who believes in him, will have eternal life for this is how God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Why do you need a king? Your king 
did the ultimate warfare with the serpent. He went right up on that cross and died for you. He broke every weapon that was ever formed against God's people so that we could live with a king over us no matter what way the country goes, people go, craziness in the world around you. You have a king. And when you're struggling and you're fighting these battles, you can look to that cross, look to him, and he will heal you. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, thank you for this. Uh, Thank you for giving us a great king, your choice, Jesus, the one and only. And we thank you for him, and we ask that you would now, as we come to this this covenant meal, this uh, remembrance and observation of the life and death of our Savior, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith. Amen.